0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the SkyTap podcast. For those of you who are new to the show, my name is Noel Wurst. I'm your host, and this program is our opportunity to chat with well-known folks from the software development, testing, DevOps, and cloud communities to learn what's going on in the software industry and how new practices, technologies, and cultures are getting higher quality software out the door more consistently and faster than ever. This week we're sharing an interview we did with Jim Fort. Jim is a Chief Strategic Architect at ADP and he gave a killer presentation at DockerCon 17 titled One Year and 1000 Plus Containers Later at ADP. We wanted to chat with Jim to learn how ADP's container adoption is growing so quickly and to get his thoughts on other approaches to legacy application modernization. We're going to go ahead and get started. And to always be the first to know when new episodes of the Skytap podcast are released, you can find them on our blog or you can search for the Skytap podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the show that way. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started.
1: And you might have heard me mention that I'm not a cloud nativist, I'm a cloud immigrant. Mm-hmm and you know the cloud nativists think that we're all going to write stateless services we're going to follow 12 factor and the world will be a better place cuz software will just run around in containers and pop in and out of existence as required and i i don't see how that happens in systems of um, of important record or systems of important information. You know, I, I don't think I want the system that holds my paycheck to pop in and out of existence. I, I want to have a paycheck. I don't want to have an ephemeral paycheck. You know, yes, the money is ephemeral. It disappears as quickly as it comes, but you know, it, it's, it, it's longer lived than calling it traditional just is, is such a cop out.
0: And then another phrase that you used that I really liked a lot was, was acquisition-induced architecture syndrome. Oh, um, ac- no,
1: no. Acquisition-induced multi-architecture multi-arch- syndrome.
0: That's right. Multi-architecture syndrome. Well, that, that's something else that we've come across at SkyTap and, and tried to help uh, alleviate some of the pains that come with that. So for maybe someone who is uh, on the brink of an acquisition or even something that just happens down the road, what are some of those early pain points that can, that can come from that? And what are some of those early ways to start relieving those quickly?
1: You know, it, it's kind of funny. It's a challenge on many levels because when you, you acquire companies for a lot of different reasons, you acquire them for um, technology, you acquire them for market share, you acquire them for revenue, you acquire them for a lot of different things. You, you really have to be kind of honest with yourself during the acquisition evaluation about just how far you're going to be able to take the software and what you're really going to be able to do with it um, in a lot of cases, we've ended up with a different platform entirely. You know, we, We've bought things that were MySQL before we were comfortable with MySQL. We've bought things that were you know, using technologies that were um, older. You know, We've we bought a company that had VB6 apps, and we turned to them and said, okay, now port it to .NET and bring it up to current standards because it's going to live longer than you guys thought it would. So you always have a little bit of a give and a take there as you work through it. Um, The other big challenge we always find is security models. Inevitably, everybody has a different idea of how to manage users, how to manage groups of users, how to manage clients. And somehow, if you're going to be a coherent enterprise, you have to come up with those core services and how you can expose them and what are the fundamental concepts. And the sooner you can define things uh, in a common language that you actually understand each other on, the faster and better it will be. You know, one of my favorites was always the manager versus supervisor discussion. In time products, supervisor is the guy who approves your time. But in payroll, manager is the guy who approves your paycheck. And there's a mismatch that can occur there because you have different roles and routes and different capacities. And it's very tempting to map them one-to-one, and they are not. And that becomes a, a huge issue as you go forward. And as you go into more and more deep domains, those misunderstandings can grow very quickly. Because, you know, human language is great. It's symbolic. It's wonderful. But you symbolically understand what you think something means. I symbolically understand what I think something means. Be great if they matched. Mm-hmm. They don't always. Right.
0: So you talk about understanding each other. Uh, you mentioned about the, the difference between cloud nativists and cloud immigrants and how you view yourself as a, as a cloud immigrant and that you don't want a wall between those groups of people. Um, are there always going to be differences that those two people are going to always struggle to see eye- to eye on, eye to eye on, or is there an opportunity, whether it's through technology or culture or whatever it is, for the nativist to understand that the immigrants deal with completely different challenges than they do, and maybe a modernization effort in particular, or is that wall is that wall going to exist for, for a while?
1: Um, I suspect the wall will exist for a while at some level. Um, it was promising today to hear Oracle say they're sticking their database in a container. Uh, one of my big complaints today is that the uh, the container world or the cloud nativist world doesn't really understand how to address things that don't go- fit. Uh, the example I always like is you have, say, a big Oracle rack or a big cluster of database servers. And if I'm running eight discrete, you know, monster servers to run my Oracle, the likelihood that I'm going to be able to fit that in a container anytime soon is pretty slim. So I I keep pushing on um, Joyent and Docker and others to come up with ways where they can create a a dummy container in the uh, native world that is kind of a punch out into the legacy world or the immigrant world and make it so that their dynamicism can still work even though there's boat anchors out there. You know, my my big Oracle rack may be a boat anchor, but why can't I describe that to Docker Compose or Docker Swarm in a way that it knows I can handle X number of connections or I can handle X number of whatevers, and then allow the auto-scaling and the dynamicism to run up and around to that and make it so that it participates in a more holistic way. And my big fear is that for non-native apps, we're gonna end up with a little bit of a management nightmare where the impedance mismatch hits between the, the legacy world and the, and the new world.
0: So I think that's a really interesting point because from the, the container point of view, everything should run in a container, in containers. From the legacy point of view, I'm only gonna put services in containers when I have them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So one side says only a little bit, the other side, side says everything. So how do you go about <clears throat> figuring out what should, be containerized versus what shouldn't. I mean, Oracle Rack is one example, but.
1: At the moment, um, Docker makes it easy for me. Until there's a good story for persistence, uh, more or less, anything that is ephemeral and can be uh, static and not, you know, stateful is a great candidate for a container. Right now, anything that requires persistence and long-lived data is a bit of a bitch to get into a container. So you kind of look at it as, well, maybe that database belongs, to, you know, even if MySQL or Postgres or whatever will run in a container. Maybe I still want it in a VM because I can attach it to my disk in a more meaningful way. I can get replication. I can get redundancy and recoverability, which the container ecosystem hasn't quite matured all the way to. You know, I, I keep waiting for, I guess it will be the next DockerCon now, where Docker pops out their solution to persistence for everybody and makes it a first-class citizen. Um, But you know right now it's one of those areas where you have to make compromises and those compromises can become management nightmares. So you've got to really pick and choose. Um, From my point of view right now what I'm thinking is that your web and your app tiers are very much available to move into containers and become more fluid and more dynamic but your persistence layer where you have a, a petabyte of data or more is probably going to stay anchored to something that is more than likely in your data center or
2: on-premise. So a long time ago, uh, Martin Fowler wrote about uh, a pattern for for modernization,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which he called the Strangler Pattern. It's the idea being um, you need to run kind of old and new in parallel. And and you build new things, new services, kind of one by one, and it's sort of like a vine or a, a, mm-hmm. around a tree, with the idea being that, you know, at some point you're dealing more with the services, the new services that you've built than with what was underneath it, and you've subsumed what's underneath it. So the question I have is, do you see that as, as a viable approach that you use? And my other question is, uh, does the legacy part ever go away?
1: I think that I agree generally with the Strangler approach. Uh, I I tend to phrase it more as encapsulate and isolate Mm -hmm. and try to uh, get the monolith contained and and isolated behind APIs. Because if you come down to it, the difference between a microservice and a monolith is very minimal. Because you're interacting with both, mostly through the API anyway. Mm -hmm. And if you're interacting through the API, why do you care? It's one or the other. So from my point of view, the legacy will die at some point, but it may be years in the future, because you should really evolve and look at where you have the um, code volatility that justifies the work. You know, if you think about it, if you have a giant application that does something, and you cheese-grade it down to, web, to microservices just to say you're a purist and you're on your microservices, if you're lucky, you've got the same thing running. If you're lucky, it performs as well, Maybe. Maybe and you've really done nothing but you know, wasted a lot of time and effort to get some efficiency that you're not really attaining. So I view it as get the, get the monolith isolated behind the API and then start to work on redirecting the API where you have a high rate of change and eventually when you've gotten to that point where Fowler would say you've managed to get to where you're doing mostly new services, you can then go back and look at how do you kill that last service. I also have some concerns in the microservice space around how do you deal with things like ad hoc reporting and other data consistency issues. Uh, Being in a payroll company, an HCM company, we do a lot of system of record work for HR and payroll and other things. And it's very hard to try to explain to a client, no, that's not available in this report because that's on microservice 73 and we only have coverage from 70 to 71 at the moment or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I, I get why it's attractive. I get why you want to be able to iterate quickly. But I think it introduces a whole new layer of complexity where you end up with data pumps and other type of models and potentially end up in a data warehousing hell because now you've made your microservices so small and disjunct that you end up in a bad place. I, I also think that Fowler makes an interesting point about when do you go to microservices. He's, he very strongly suggests that you start by building a monolith and you carve it down when it becomes cumbersome. I've seen a lot of teams try to go to microservices from the start, and when they try to go to microservices from the get-go, they end up with femto services or pico services or some ridiculous level of granularity where it becomes unmanageable and potentially unstable because of the complexity and the sprawl.
2: Just one thing to mention there that goes to your point. Uh, if you see the the trace routes that people put together to kind of show you how their new microservices system, what it looks like, they're all death stars. Every yeah. one of them looks exactly the same is is and so you've got something that's quite complex and the challenge of making it comprehensible is is a big issue.
1: Well, basically you need a spirograph to go ahead and draw your network drawing. <laughs> well,
2: what's going on? Well, you see this circle just
1: keeps going around and 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 it comes out. Oh, wait, no, it keeps going around. It may never come out. <laughs> So I, I think there's a, a place for it and I think there's a, certainly in, in high volatility code where you're iterating a lot, I can see the value, but I think you've got to really think about the full set of use cases around the periphery because, you know, not everything is a mobile app like Snapchat where you pop it up there and let it flow and don't worry about it and it's gone in 10 seconds, you know. Mm-hmm. Some things do have some durability associated with them and that durability comes at a cost and. The mistakes you make on a durable application uh, are also durable, unfortunately.
2: (laughs) At At Container
0: World, you mentioned that um, you guys do your development up in the cloud, dev and test in the cloud, and then run on-premises production. Can you talk about the motivations for that and how that's going for you?
1: To be honest, at the moment we do kind of a mix of both. We do have dev and test running both in our Docker data center install in the house as well as in the cloud. Uh, Typically, it's about uh, provisioning time and the appearance that it's more uh, elastic to go straight to the public cloud for the development side. Uh, Public cloud for production is more challenging because of the uh, security paranoia that we deal with and there's some concerns around the um, how do you protect the data at rest in the cloud and um, we have some very strange opinions on some of that stuff around uh, the keys and the ciphertext can't be with the same vendor because then they could be subpoenaed and decrypted. And th- I am an amateur uh, paranoia person. I-, I-, I do security mainly because the professional paranoids have made my life living hell enough that I need to do enough to fight back and try to figure out how we keep moving the company forward. Um, but I do not claim to be a security professional. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: So to, to wrap up, you had, you had two other lines in your session yesterday that I thought were just awesome that kind of can be used as motivators to, to figure out what your best path to moderniz- modernization is. And you said, um, you said if you wait to adapt, or if you wait to adopt technology until you're comfortable with it, you're probably too late, uh, which yeah, I really liked that, a lot. That
1: actually belongs to Brian Cantrell. Uh, Brian Cantrell made the point at ContainerSummit.io, I think it was in New York a year or so ago where he stood up on stage and said if you wait till you're comfortable with technology, you're probably too late. And I thought that was a very telling thing.
0: That was great. And then you also said, I'm not sure if this one, if this one was yours, but you said, uh, you, you said how much engineering, that, that, a, that a great question for engineering teams to ask themselves is how much engineering do you want to do versus how much engineering do you just want to get done? I thought it was a really great approach. We talk a lot of times about whether the path is, the smart path is to to rewrite everything, you know, for the cloud or whether it's to get it into containers or whether you have some options there to not have to do that and still take advantage of of modernization options that are out there.
1: From, From my perspective, if we assume we have a fixed amount of resource to do the work, putting crappy code or monoliths into containers, to change your build and commit semantic and how you deploy and how you operate, frees up enough bodies that you can go back and clean up the things that really are ugly and need correction or need improvement. So it becomes kind of an arbitrage of where do you want to play the game. You know, I I think that a lot of the vendors, the the Dockers of the world, the Joyants of the world, uh, the Mesos of the world, have done some great things to lower the barrier for people to adopt elastic cloud type of technologies without necessarily having to become engineers themselves. And as it becomes more consumerized, I think there's a lot of benefit to even taking the older code and moving it and getting the reliability and the better uh, management and better semantics around how you interact with it. You know, at one point I tried to get to where we could move VMs the way we talk about moving containers. And all I would ever get from the ops team was lectures on time and space and physics. No, you can't do that. No, it won't work. No, it'll take too long. No, it will. So, you know, this is how do we get to yes. And, you know, getting to yes is figuring out how can we take the the benefit of today's technology and use it to help us stand on the shoulders of giants to move forward and get where we want to go.
0: That's going to do it for this week's episode. We'd like to thank Jim Ford at ADP for taking the time to sit down with us at DockerCon. His session was definitely one of the week's best, and it was awesome to get some one-on-one time with him to dive deeper into the challenges around incorporating new technology within older legacy applications. We also recorded episodes with speakers from Accenture and Puppet while we were there at DockerCon, and those episodes will post next week and the week after. After that, we've got a conversation with IBM DevOps expert Sanjeev Sharma, a really cool episode with some on our own engineering team, and all kinds of great stuff to look forward to after that. So don't forget, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes, so you're always the first to know about new episodes. Thanks so much again for joining us. We hope to have you join us again on future episodes of the SkyTap podcast.